ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We're in the remote north of Australia, in the West Kimberley region, and researcher Rowan Fisher is leading a discussion with a group of Danby Mangari Aboriginal Rangers. All right, is that it? See what happens? Yeah. We save that ignition? Yeah. And then you go. Oh, hold on. When are we doing it? In the morning? Uh, morning. Morning. morning or afternoon time? Morning. morning. They're gathered around a large, rather unique looking fire map. Well, the work that I create, I mean, it's really quite simple. We're sort of 3D printing the landscapes. And I mean, 3D printing is about as exciting as watching grass grow after you've done it a few times. And then essentially, we're just putting a projector over the top, but it creates almost like a tactile hologram, the, the look of it, but it's very simple, essentially, and quite robust. So the first step is to create the 3D models. So they're generally about a metre by 80 centimetres in size and consist of around 30 3D printed tiles. So they're quite mobile when it turn up to a place where we're going to use the simulation. We First, we set up the 3D tiles. I've got a projector which is mounted onto the side of a table which points down. And then we have the simulation which is run directly off a, a laptop. So the physical construction takes about 15 minutes and packs down into a case and can be taken anywhere for rapid deployment. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense, and a story about clever but simple innovation, about remembering that for science to have impact, it must be inclusive, engaging and relevant. People need to be able to relate to it. Now, fire is the primary focus, and Dr Fisher and his colleagues are interested in finding a better way to communicate vital information. Skies over the Barclay shrouded in smoke as 10,000 square kilometres of dry bushland go up in flames. Crews working day and night to battle the blaze, which has now... So I've been working supporting fire management across northern Australia for many years and often with Indigenous fire managers and fire behaviour is a deeply complex phenomenon. And so I was trying to find ways where we could incorporate satellite data that we use to understand fuel loads in a way that supports local and Indigenous knowledge in thinking about and talking about their fire management practices And I saw some work many years ago being conducted by a group called SimTable out of California, I think, where they were using sand as a 3D landscape to add dimensionality to their fire simulations and immediately loved the idea of having that sort of tactile third dimensional space to make really explicit the complexity of landscapes and behaviour within landscapes that they were talking about. So that's what really motivated me to sort of head down this path of trying to develop a shared space which would enable cross-cultural engagement around really quite complex sort of human ecological phenomena and fire being a, a classic one of those. The use of innovative projection augmented landscape model technology is bringing science and local knowledge together in a way that facilitates learning about our land. 
The approach uses simulation. In terms of the fire simulation, I've done a lot of work trying to develop the simulations as a storytelling tool around understanding the key variables that drive fires in savannah landscapes, and unpacking that and making that interactive in a way which is easily used and in a way to communicate those variables um, over the 3D simulation. So you can take it out bush as long as you've got a gen set to start up, it'll work anywhere, but it really engages people around the topic. But I guess what I'm focused on is not so much the technology as in itself, it's really a facilitating tool because the key thing is how you get people thinking and working together. So, I mean, there's there's so much we can do at what I call the blunt edge of those things that we know that work without sort of getting carried away with, about, you know, what is the next best thing. And you use the term storytelling tool there. That idea of creating a story, not just giving people data is important, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, with the fire simulation work, I generally prefer not to say that it's predictive, although I use some pretty strong empirical data sets to drive the way fire is behaving. But as with any complex system, there is a point at which prediction becomes very difficult, if not impossible. But you can understand those variables and being able to describe the key variables that drive a system and create a story around that, which helps people understand how that they can control and manage that system also to incorporate the local knowledge as is appropriate to the context of that system. So, yeah, it's it's really a device, whether I'm telling the story or whether, more importantly, it's one of the local communities that I'm providing these models to, it's enabling them to tell their own story around that landscape and the problems that they're encountering in managing it sustainably. Okay, thanks very much, and uh, thanks for everyone coming along in person, you got to see the uh, protection augmented landscape in uh, in all its tactile glory. And for those who are online, maybe now Dr. Fisher's multi-sensory approach is called PALM, short for Projection Augmented Landscape Modelling. If you want to see what it looks like, just go to the Future Tense website and you'll find a link. It fosters engagement by creating an almost game-like experience. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, there are decades of research that show that the way people learn new things and engage is in a multimodal and multi-sensory way. So whether we know it or not, we're using all of our senses when we're talking with each other and thinking about new things. It's really been a surprise to me to watch whenever I set up one of my landscapes, one of the first things that people do is, is touch it. And that tactility interacts with what people are seeing and with what they're hearing when they talk to each other. And it creates a new way that they learn. I mean, it's been a surprise to me as I've watched it roll out how important that tactility is. The other element is making that third dimension really explicit. So when you're thinking about any landscape process, it happens in the third dimension. So where water flows, where different plants and where different animals are, all depends on the third dimension. And similarly, where fire flows also depends on where water flows, where you get vegetation, where you get fuel. So it all happens in that third dimensional landscape. So making that explicit really helps people understand what's going on. And by projecting data onto the physical map surface, it really brings the whole thing to life, doesn't it? Yeah, indeed. So as soon as you've got the projection over the top, you can add that fourth dimension, which is time. So you can simulate dynamic processes. And of course, we all live in a four-dimensional world. We navigate in a three-dimensional space and we're all moving through time. So by adding the 
fourth dimension to these geographic landscapes, whether it be water flow or fire movement or some other landscape process, it really helps people think about and understand what's going on. Basically, over the last couple of years, we have really tried to find a way to break science down in a way that everybody can understand and engage with it. And I don't mean simplification, I mean thinking through who's using that information in what way to drive effective decision making. Lisa Kingsbury is based in Fiji and works for the international development agency known as the Pacific Community, or SPC. What Rowan Fisher is doing with augmented landscape modelling in Australia's north? Well, Lisa is doing across the many island nations to Australia's east. I work for, you know, one of the largest scientific and technical agencies in the Pacific. We work for Pacific governments. We develop early warning systems and understanding of how sea level rise will affect communities and look at projected modelling to actually make the right decisions around infrastructure and relocation of communities. These are not easy decisions that the region is facing. But actually breaking that down from the technical science in a way that everyone can connect with, because this is really a human challenge. This is people at the centre of it. And so we started to come up with this idea of what we're calling a, a 3D atoll model. And the way, you know, I kind of describe it is it's a giant puzzle of 30 different pieces of 3D printed squares that you put together and then you project down different modelling onto it. And so when we started to develop this, it was actually for a ministerial meeting that was happening and we wanted the ministers to really understand in the Pacific what 25 centimetres of sea level rise meant or what 50 centimetres of sea level rise meant. And, you know, when we started to visualise it, you think, okay, well, these low-lying islands, you know, they're two or three metres above sea level, so what's 25 centimetres? But when you actually start to look at what 25 centimetres does when there's big waves, when there's a storm surge, for example, or there's a cyclone, that 25 centimetres changes what would be just this tiny little flood around the edge of the coastline and it means that the water goes all the way inland. It hits food security. It means salt water's in the food crops for communities. It means that it's in their salt water. It means that it hits more infrastructure. And that's only at 25 centimetres, which based on predictions could be as early as 2030 if we don't slow down carbon emissions or if we do slow down, could be as late as 2070. And so understanding this modelling allows us to give countries the capacity to make the decisions they need to make, but also use the science to advocate for the need to actually slow carbon emissions drastically, you know, in the coming years. From a technical perspective, you know, you think, yeah, okay, we've done it. We've helped break down the information in the right way so the right people are hearing these messages. And in a lot of cases, it's messages outside the Pacific. It's those that have decision-making outside the region that, you know, are, are much more connected to carbon emissions than those within the region. But the challenge is it's actually really difficult to have those conversations and you see people react. When you get to 50 centimetres, people start to see it and you just feel this silence kind of come across the table. And that's why having it as this space where you're not making anybody put a headphone on, it's not, you know, ocular headsets or 3D worlds. It's actually physical in a space where human beings are connecting. You can feel the impact that they're seeing because they're understanding it. 
Good morning to everyone who's joining us here live in New York and to everyone who's joining via the internet from Europe and Asia. Good afternoon. Lisa recently returned from the Climate Week conference in New York, where the dynamic tactile modelling approach was employed by representatives from the Marshall Islands as a way to try and influence and win over international policymakers. So we were there with the modelling to support the countries. Our role, as I said, is to work behind our members to support them with science and information as needed. And so in this particular case, we were there to support the two climate envoys, Kathy Gentnil-Kitchener and Tina Stegg, on their representation of, you know, where Marshall Islands is and its risk in terms of the future impacts of loss and damage, the loss and damage that they're already facing as a result of climate change, what it was before sea level rise, because they're already facing sea level rise as a result of carbon emissions globally, and then also looking at, you know, future predictions and what this means. And so this modelling particularly looks at the Republic of the Marshall Islands, but it's a reality that low-lying islands will face. And so this is not something that, you know, people from overseas see and think, oh, that's just an issue for the Pacific. People identify with this immediately because we all have low-lying islands in different countries. This kind of modelling shows the reality that these low-lying islands across the region are already facing. And so, it, yeah, it is quite confronting when you have those conversations. Confronting indeed. But when attitudes are fixed, it can be well near impossible to find a consensus on future action. Claude Garcia is a professor of international forest management who specialises in trying to bring warring parties together, dispute resolution, and he does it through a process of agreed understanding. So I started developing games in 2009. I worked on many issues, agroforestry, coffee agroforestry in India, water management in Thailand, and effectively logging and mining in Central Africa. Whenever you have people disagreeing on what to do with the landscape, what to do about nature, then these games are useful. Like Rowan and Lisa, Professor Garcia puts a premium on keeping things human-centric. And the gaming strategy he's developed can be tailored to the specifics and personalities of any given dispute. There's often a misunderstanding when people look at our methods, the games are models of our landscape works, our system works, so a game is a model. And then through playing, we try to find what works best, right? But of course, you could find what works best for you, and you can say, I don't care, it's not my problem. Or you can find ways that work for you and that can also work for the others and for the system. That's what we're looking for. Often, the, the misconception is that People are nice and then they want to collaborate. And that's not true. Some of the strategies that work in our games can be anything but nice. But it needs to be, we need to be able to think about them in order to be able to better cope with them, with these kind of solutions, with these kind of strategies. So the, the idea is we do this in three steps. The first step is just making sure that we've understood how the system works. People play and they, they tell, yes, it feels like reality. Then we know we have a solid basis on which we can start talking. Then the second step is then how do we play better, right? What are the strategies that work better? And that already, you know, that's, that's where there is room for improvement. That's where people can find things together. But the, I think the most promising way is the third way. You explore everything you can do 
with a given set of rules, then you can challenge these rules. You can ask people, what should we change in the system in order for you to be able to, to go where you want to go? And that's where participants start redesigning the system. And that's really what is important. Is the close personal contact involved in this kind of strategy gaming, is that also important? I believe so. However, one of the challenges is that we haven't found a way to measure that. You know, in philosophy, people talk about the hard problem of consciousness. And the hard problem of consciousness is what does it feel to be somebody else, right? And here we have exactly the same process. So you come to one of my game sessions, and I give you the role of a smallholder in Cameroon producing oil palm, you know, struggling to make ends meet and then to, to pay your bills and to make sure your kids stay in college. Well, what we claim is that in two hours, you will have a glimpse of what it feels like being effectively a smallholder in Cameroon. But I cannot measure that. You can experience it and you can tell me, yes, it feels real or I understand them better, but there's nothing I can do to measure that objectively. And that's one of the challenges we have. It matters to people that they have the experience. It's not just data that is given to them. It's an experience. And I think the combination of information, the game contains information. With the emotions and the experience of the game, that's what leads to insights. So with this strategy gaming approach, the scenario and the background needs to be accurate and relevant to the contentious issue that's being discussed. But I presume also you have to make sure that you've got the right people in the room for it to fully be effective. If my aim is to help change the system for the better, and the better being a solution where people are happier and where the system is, is doing better, right? So if my aim is to change the system effectively, those playing need to be people with power to change that system. An example I always give, students playing will not change the system that they are trying to understand. Interns playing will not then follow up and change the strategy of the company. Farmers playing will not be able to follow up and modify the um, agricultural subsidies structure, for example. They will be the ones that can say, yes, the game feels right, the game is realistic. However, those that need to play in order for the system to change are those that have power to change the system. And I presume that's where one of the big difficulties of this approach lies, getting those people to cooperate in the first place. Yes, and surprisingly, the main reason why we have this difficulty is because, honestly, who believes with games we can do policy? Who thinks that? It seems naive, yet we've done it. So we know it can work. And if it can work, then we just need to go through that. So people, I understand that they are skeptical, but when they hear that it works and they have reports that it works, it's a bit more challenging to be dismissive, right? That's what we're doing. And that's one of the things I'm doing right now, talking with you, is explaining people it actually works when people come to the table. Now, Professor Garcia, is it pains to point out that while his form of conflict resolution is game-focused, it shouldn't be confused with the popular tech approach known as gamification. Gamification is a process of taking elements of, of games and bringing them to real life to change behaviour. A very clear example, my kids don't like to brush their teeth, so I buy a toothbrush, and if you shake the toothbrush for two minutes, it will start singing a little tune, right? So it's an element of game, and you have stars, and you have 
ratings and when you do the things that I want you to do, but you're not willing to do for whatever reason. It is very similar to manipulation. It is effectively manipulation. What we do is the exact opposite. So instead of taking elements of game in real life, we represent real life in the universe of the game. People are free to enter. People are free to exit at any moment. And what they do with what they've done, with the insights they gain, is their entire responsibility. So the logic is different. Many of the problems we have, when we disagree, we tend to disagree on on values. You have your values, I have my values, and, and we don't want the same things for the future. So building agreement on these values is extremely difficult. And actually, you won't budge, and I won't budge. Eventually, we will come to a compromise which will be a reflection of our power imbalance. If you're stronger, your values will prevail over mine, and I will have to stay quiet. Okay, so this is very basic. Now, the point is, it's actually easy to build agreement, not on what we want, but on what there is. For example, I can have a different position than you on corruption, but we can agree that in that particular system, corruption is part of the figure. I can be upset about it, you can be pragmatic about it, but we both agree it exists. See, it's easier to build agreement on what there is. The game builds that. The game, when you learn to play the game, you are actually taking on board the rules of how we understand the world to work. The rules describe a system. You learn these rules. You learn a description of the world. And then you can say, yeah, it works for me. I learn the same thing. I learn the same rules. So then we agree on the description of the world. And on that basis, it will be possible to work together. That idea of a human-centric approach, a human-centric process, is important, isn't it? It's crucial because we live in the Anthropocene. It means that by far, it's humans shaping what's happening to the world, whether we like it or not. So since humans are at the root cause of the challenges we face in biodiversity loss, in climate change, in inequality, humans are also a solution. In my field... I work in environmental sciences. Everybody's talking about nature-based solutions. In other fields, it would be, you know, technology-based solutions. I call for people-based solutions because that's what we are. That's who we are. That's where I believe the solution has to be found. Yes, of course, technology can help. Yes, of course, better understanding of nature will help. But at the root core, it's how we decide together. If we can transform the way we decide together on things where we disagree on, then we need to change the system. Claude Garcia from the University of Applied Sciences in Switzerland. And now to Mexico, and a reminder that in many parts of the world, the technology-first approach that's so common today, well, that approach, it actually carries significant political and historic baggage. Jose Maria Leon Villalobos. In Mexico, we have a very long colonial past and dependency on the North Mexico has a long history of discourses which favors modernity rather than local knowledge as a solution to environmental and social problems. For instance, all along the 19th and the 20th century, the rural development policy of my country was centered basically on economic growth and modernization with a very strong emphasis on increasing agricultural production which heavily relied on foreign science and technology, but with the rejection of indigenous cultures, including traditional farming and diets based on maize. 
So traditional practices, farming, were considered useless. And we adopted a new different model that was based on the use of chemicals and machinery and agricultural intensification. And that provoked degradation, not only in the general environment, but soils were degraded. We experienced loss of fertility. Also, we polluted soils. And this new model of agriculture, which was the panacea for solving all the poverty and food issues, resulted in all these environmental problems that we are facing right now. This is the type of situation that we have experienced following modernity as the solution and the technology as solution for all the problems that we have here in Mexico. But the real solution, says Jose, can only come through striking a better balance between competing interests. He and his colleagues are helping to do that through participatory mapping, using the same dynamic modelling approach that Rowan Fisher introduced us to at the very beginning of this show. We follow these cultural protocols and use participatory mapping for creating other kind of tools that help us to facilitate dialogue, learning and cooperation. We make art, we make maps, we make models. We have some very nice experiences working in the center of Mexico, working with native communities. And much of the research there was to help people, to help indigenous people to show their understandings and views of their territory by making maps. People was able to create maps of their farming landscapes to represent the local terms, the terms that they use to name the different types of lands, different types of hills, but also to document their different management practices and cultural meanings. We also have very nice experiences in South Mexico by using some 3D models that actually help people to understand what is the impact of soil erosion in their territory. 3D models are valuable tools. We discovered that they are valuable tools that helps them to integrate different forms of knowledge. For instance, when we use these 3D models with different layers of information, we're able to help people to understand how this soil erosion process is happening in their territories, but also how they perceive them, how severe for them those degradation expressions are, or what are their experiences of them to facing those problems. And we try to combine by using these 3D models, not only the indigenous knowledge with the scientific one, but also with the participation of other actors such as the state, and has been really useful, you know, for guiding different public policies that be addressed in a more adequate form to solve this severe problem that we have in South Mexico. We have to realize that scientists or the state cannot solve those problems by their own. We need the participation of other actors and participatory techniques are really helpful for helping us, for motivating us to collaborate and work together. I think there 
has long been, I call it like a techno fetishism, you know, this um, desire to be at the cutting edge and to pursue whatever seems to be the new thing as if the technology in of itself is a solution. But technology and with science in of itself will not be a solution to any of our more sort of complex uh, human ecological problems. Once again, it comes to finding sort of real human centric approaches and tools that can assist people talking together and discussing solutions in a shared way. Rowan Fisher from Charles Darwin University, one of the ABC's top five science media residents for 2023. We also heard today from Jose Maria Leon Villalobos, a geospatial information researcher with Centro Geo in Mexico City, Lisa Kingsbury from the Pacific Community based in Fiji, and Claude Garcia at the University of Applied Sciences in Switzerland. Thanks as always to my co-producer, Karen Sivanovitz. You've been listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.